Hey, I'm here with John, and uh, he happened to drop by this uh, day, and so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, divine simplicity, which may not sound like a thrilling topic in and of itself, but I think the, the key to understanding its importance is to recognize that the relinquishing of this doctrine is very much uh, connected to the rise of penal substitution. Uh, and in, in that regard, a, a lot of Protestant uh, understanding that, uh, or, or a problem in Protestantism that's completely missing in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So what we, we want to do a kind of broad-range uh, conversation uh, about the importance of the doctrine and the way that it the way that it's couched in relationship to, to other doctrines. But let's start, John. Can you just define for us, what do we mean by divine simplicity? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'll preface this with my context right now is working within the prima pars of Aquinas' Summa Theologia. So he introduces divine simplicity, I think, after introducing already his idea of what salvation looks like. And I think that's key, but we'll kind of come back to that. Just a quick definition of what divine simplicity is, is that you can have something simple in the sense of something very, very, very small, or something simple in the sense of something very, very large, but it has to do with something being self-sufficient. It has to do with um, something as being identical with its attributes is one way of looking at it, or so I, the will and intellect are identical. Um, simple in the sense, in that sense, in God, is that God is love. So divine simplicity would say that there isn't a gap between those two things. And an example to understand what the opposite would be is that human beings aren't simple. And so we can be loving, but we still might fail to love at some points. Whereas since God is love, and that's one of his, you know, his characteristic or attributes, who he is, then God is always love. He is the very definition of love itself. Um, there's not ever a time where God couldn't be love, that type of thing. And I think that's one way of thinking about simplicity. It also has to do with being itself. So God is being itself, which would mean he isn't of the same order of existent beings as everything else. And I mean, how do you say this? Everything else that exists is in a different order of existence than God because we are all caused beings. We've and been the, created. We're finite. God's we, infinite. So We've touched on this, yeah, the whole university of being that uh, that in some way... There is a way of talking about creation and God as being on a continuum that you get in uh, University of Being that sometimes is blamed, wrongly, you would say, on Aquinas that comes actually contemporaneous with uh, Aquinas, but uh, that divine simplicity is actually rightly understood and, of course, predates uh, the the that once that's in place, and you would say predates, or uh, in other words, we often equate it with a kind of Greek Aristotelian uh, notion of who God is, but run, run down for us that that may be a fallacy. Well, yeah, we were, and of course it is, it's all, I mean, it's in a lot of Greek philosophy, it would be the, the truth of the matter, but as we were talking briefly, um, 
I, I was thinking of the open theologians in specific that they are they're one of their biggest critiques is this is just Aristotelian metaphysics. But I think that's to miss that at least from the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, so towards the end of Augustine's life, who was somebody who believed in divine simplicity or thought that was helpful in conceptualizing God, um, all the way up until the Aristotelian texts were brought back into Europe by Islamic scholars and translated, divine simplicity would have been held in the Western Church without any referent to Aristotle. So it's not in any way dependent upon an Aristotelian framework. It's a notion that, I mean, I think is there in Plato as well, but it's a notion that people have come to um, that aren't Christians. And the question would be, well, is that enough, or what does that mean in that context? And, um, you know, it may be that divine simplicity, This, and I'm not going to commit myself to this, but it, it's very possible that divine simplicity, apart from being metaphorically applied to the God who is trinitarian and self-revealing of himself is just ontotheology uh, that's it's very possible that divine simplicity only conceptualizes one very big being who acts differently than all other beings in existence but is still just a being in existence apart from what you get in christian trinitarian theology and let's let's be clear here that that uh, that by ontotheology uh, the idea of a kind of theology gone bad, or uh, a conflation of being and God, yeah. is what I was thinking. Yeah. But uh, and so I think actually divine simplicity, rightly understood in, in a Christian theology, is to safeguard against onto theology because it's to say, well, God can't be conflated with being as we are beings. But that's not to say that we aren't absolutely dependent upon God for our being. So that God is the infinite source of all being, who is beyond all being, and who he is, you know, there is no cause outside of God making him who he is type of thing. We still participate in him. Divine simplicity safeguards against saying that it works the other way around so that who God is is contingent upon his creation or who we are. Well, let me just fill in, you know, that... that uh most of us recognize that ontotheology has been taken in post-modernity as being definitive of Western thought, uh, that it is this whole idea of a conflation of uh, a philosophical understanding of God, of being able to uh, get to God then through uh, being the being of the world in some way, that it's on a continuum. Uh, that it would, and not just Christian thought. That of course this is the end of Western, the Western philosophical tradition. If if it ends in Heidegger, mm-hmm. maybe that's what Heidegger's whole point is: uh, is that that in some way uh, it is it is reducible to an onto theology, and so the 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 philosophical tradition, the theological tradition has recognized, I think, the dead end of that uh, to, to a degree. And so what you're wanting to do is, or, or you're, you're claiming that, uh, that it rightly understood that divine simplicity is a protection against what most people take mm-hmm. to be divine yeah. simplicity. Yeah. yeah, or well, at least what most people take to be the problems in Western Christianity. 
So that also you can use Heidegger almost in um, von Balthasar does as sort of a reference point um, to make that shift and say, well, it's not about what we can and that, the Western about what we can know. The Western tradition gets so caught up in what is what are we able to know about things think about kant kant isn't denying the existence of god he's just denying that you can know anything about the existence of god or that our knowledge can in any way pertain uh, and he sees that as a problem and heidegger of course never would want to talk about god and being in the same sentence <laughs> he says himself mm-hmm. but his the main thrust of a lot of his thought is just to say you know to start talking about thinking as primary is probably to miss the fact that Everything you're referencing is already in existence, primordial. So it's just there. It's a given. It's already furniture in your in your mind or in the processes that you're thinking in. Well, that's exactly what um, you have. Certain people in recent John Milbank and company in the 20th century, a lot of 20th century Catholic thought, doing the same kind of shift to say if we're only going to talk about the relationship between the relationship of humans to God in terms of an epistemology, what we can know, uh, which is what the Western tradition has been caught up and preoccupied in. We're missing the fact that uh, what's fundamental and what's basic is that all of this is already in existence. This has got to be a conversation about ontology instead. And so divine simplicity is taking that into account and trying to describe what the relationship would be on an ontological level between creation, which is dependent upon creator, as the reason for creation's existence, without conflating that being, with still being able to say that who God is then would not be contingent upon creation. And it sounds maybe like I'm just repeating myself, but I think that point is what's central because, in a way, that protects all of theological discourse from thinking that we've gotten a handle on who God is. Or that we could explain, perhaps as uh, Calvinism does, or Banyesianism does, in the, or Molinism does, in the grace debates, the kind of characteristic of Western theology, that we might be able to explain what God is doing. And so divine simplicity helps us, rather, to understand that we participate in God's grace, and that's a matter of what we are and what we're becoming. It's an ontological matter, and you know, theology is a reflection on that. Theology isn't about what can we know about God beyond all of those issues, beyond how things really are. And, uh, and a key point that we, you, you're, we brought out here previous to recording and that is that there the departure in the western church uh in in uh with augustine's notion of original sin uh that in some way sin and salvation then uh and even grace uh become uh, uh, grace becomes aimed at sin as if that's mm-hmm. the extent of it or salvation in some way is particularly uh, aimed at sin alone. And what you're describing then is a, uh, a more fulsome notion of the purposes of creation. So the way, the way that uh, we often would privilege revelation or we would privilege uh, in some way redemption or, or rather salvation 
or in in the Western Church, or some would privilege creation, uh, perhaps in a, a kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know con- uh, uh, the idea of a huh? late. I was thinking late Protestant or uh, broke Catholic natural theologies. Yeah, we could figure this stuff out based on philosophy or human reason alone. Yeah, a kind of a continuity and arrogant. Yeah, so run down for us then. We don't want to do any of those things. Yeah, uh, that what would be what is the mistake that uh, is taking place? Uh, for example, when someone privileges revelation. Yeah. And maybe it is just a human mistake. We get a little piece of the truth, and we think we figured everything out, and we we run with it. But um, I think in privileging revelation alone, so if the conversation was just about what can be known about God, well, all that can be known about God is, say, either what is revealed in the cross, which is at least how people following Luther take what he's saying, or... Uh, which would also leave a lot hidden, by the way. Um, or, on the flip side, you know, we can know God just by natural revelation, philosophy, human reason. That's good enough. We can know everything that can be known that way, and theology is just a parallel. Uh, which, both of those things have been said at some point between 1500 and today. The problem with that is that there isn't a real appreciation for... What is God doing in creation? What is the movement of God? Uh, why, what, you know, what is the point of existence at that point? If we're having a conversation that is purely about knowing, what does it mean to exist in relationship to God? So I think, uh, and then what usually happens is somehow sin enters in as being the encumbrance to knowing God, or vice versa, you just say, well, you know, sin doesn't really matter at all, and human reason is intact. That's sort of the liberal theological project of uh, a privilege. late modernity is, just, yeah. well, sin, we don't, we're not sinners, you know, we've got yeah. it all figured out, we're fine. Um, and that privilege is a rationalism. And maybe the opposite of that is then to in some way make sin central so that all of the movement uh is even in god himself is is understood as the need for god to get over his anger problem yeah uh that uh so that uh, penal substitution and i would say divine satisfaction i know you're hesitant to go with well at least there's a shift happening i mean it's there, there are differences from what the early church, how the early church would have framed it up. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is the whole conversation we were having. You know, is Billy Graham in purgatory? <laughs> uh, well, he's in purgatory along with everybody else, according to a Roman Catholic understanding of divine satisfaction, because you have to pay off the penalty. It's still the same language. And I would claim that language. Uh, I have no interest in... I I have an appreciation for some of what Aquinas has done, but when you get into the details of it, I think the Roman Catholic notion... You mean Anselm? Yes, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I I just were referencing... Yeah, I meant Anselm. Uh, And so what you're describing, I think, uh, precedes this whole notion that God in some way is the one that needs uh, the cross of Christ. 
which is already a relinquishing. I mean, this is the irony of process theology, of open theology. A lot of the guys that are doing open theology are coming right out of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. But what is inherent to Calvinism, or I think more than Calvinism, maybe a broad swath of Protestantism, uh, is this already there has been a relinquishing of an orthodox understanding of who God is. And so the the reaction, you know, well, that you know, there's a relinquishing of foreknowledge, there's a, a giving over to process, as if that is the resolution to the problem of, uh, you know, a, a Calvinistic or Protestant mm-hmm. understanding of what I think is an Aristotelian yeah, well, uh, per- perversion. You could just say, I don't know, it's, it's, that is the perversion is to equate God with um, something in the universe. So that, I mean, I think that's true, and I think that's what, uh, you know, postmodern philosophers and theologians alike have hit upon, and it's powerful in that sense. So that's, I mean, there's people who think that, oh, well, medieval theology was just taking up Aristotle and not making changes, but most of them, I, I think you could probably say all of them that, have been kept in the sense that anybody that we have texts from would have said, well, no, obviously in Aristotle's framework, um, there is no truly transcendent being in the same sense that we believe in a Trinitarian God. And so there, and you've got matter is eternal and all sorts of these other problems that just don't uh, congeal with Christianity very well. So I think what you're alluding to, and of course, quite rightly is that sin has been a, and the grace debates have been sort of the central characterizing you know, theme or catalyst of Western Christianity. So that from the very beginning, you have, I mean, well, from, not from the very beginning, but from Augustine, where you start seeing a Western tradition take off as distinct from what the East will claim anyway, you have a debate about grace between Augustine and Pelagius. And I don't, wouldn't want to go with Augustine on all of the things that he says against Pelagius, but I certainly wouldn't want to go with Pelagius. And I think what happens is that, or what happened, rather, is that there wasn't sufficient specific language to be able to talk about how is grace gratuitous? How do we have free will? How is God free? and to be able to hold all of those things together. So the Pelagianism, at least the way that I understand what was being taught, implied, at least, that a human being might live in such a way that Jesus wasn't necessary. And then the opposite of that was to tie the necessity of Jesus the necessity of grace, to overcoming sin. What if that's not the debate? <laughs> what if those are already wrong assumptions? And I think that's what you start getting worked out in the Middle Ages. The, and let me just Go ahead. That repeat what you're saying and emphasize it, that there is a shift then to, uh, with uh, Augustine's doctrine of original sin, that... In a sense, both Pelagius and uh, Augustine's notion of original sin 
have already shifted the mm-hmm. entire discussion away from a proper balance. Yeah, yeah and I mean, his, if we were going to try to be as historically precise as possible, it's probably the way you could tell the story is, and I'm not just trying to get Augustine off the hook, it's just Augustine is so problematic since he disagrees with himself. <laughs> so it's hard to, to track it historically. It's probably Pelagius's false teaching sets the agenda, and Augustine is willing to enter into that argument, whereas he should have just said, well, that's the wrong argument. Yeah, I think that's a well-documented. Yeah, so, I mean, he, he, he literally wins the argument, you know, thank goodness, in some sense, but the problem was that Pelagius got to set the control, the boundaries. And so let's correct that. Let's yeah, say, okay, yeah. what's, the, what's the corrective? The, the, where did we go wrong? So in, then, um, in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, with people like Philip the Chancellor, uh, the University of Paris, Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, probably others that I just don't know about, so uh, it's just my limitations. There was a discourse, and it, first an attempt at a discourse, that was able to say why the Incarnation was necessary apart from sin. Because everybody knew that had to be the case. Uh, it's, that's not a very hard thing to come to. Uh, that sin cannot necessitate why God does what he does, because then sin would be a cause for things that God is doing. So why does the Incarnation happen? Why is the Incarnation a fulfillment of creation? And in some sense, it's to get our doctrine of salvation correct, or you could, or a doctrine of creation correct. At the same time, I think the two cohere nicely if they're held in balance. So that God has created us in his wisdom and in his love, rather than in his power and will. He's created us in his wisdom and his love. God's will is the cause of all things. But his wisdom and love determine how he has created us to be beings that are going to bear the image and likeness of God. And I think you can say both and. So humanity was created as bearing the image and likeness of God, and humanity is created to bear the image and likeness of God. Because, going back to divine simplicity, what we're talking about when we say God is a a being who is not of our order, who is infinite, who is perfect, who is... um, well, we just take infinite and perfect. So perfect in the sense that God can't become more God than he already is, and is infinitely that way, and we're going to bear that image as finite creations. That would mean that there's an eternal aspect to our growth. Uh, and not, etern- not an eternal amount of time. Uh-huh. Eternal is denoting something that is beyond time, and distinct, different than time. Uh, that that process doesn't end. That's There's an ongoing... Um, growth of the finite into the infinite and one that's never achievable but that we will be said to achieve god as he knows himself in a finite manner so we we are going to have the knowledge of god or the knowledge we're going to have god's knowledge rather is the way you should say that specifically as the blessed new heavens and new earth type stuff there's an eschatological dimension to this but that's not one that can ever be um, complete in the sense of absolutely really reached its destination because the destination itself is infinite. And this is the beauty of God. This is the wisdom and the goodness of God, that this would be expressed in creation. That's who we are. Well, once you say that, uh, why is the incarnation necessary? 
because it's necessary for God to completely identify with us so that we can identify with God. That's the mission of the Son of God becoming incarnate Jesus Christ. Why does Jesus Christ have to die? Well, a lot of why Jesus Christ has to die is actually because, and this is in the Gospels, the Jews and the Romans need to kill him, otherwise they're going to have issues. The Jews specifically need to kill him because otherwise the Romans are going to have issues with them. And the Romans need to kill him because you can't allow people to walk around saying that they're the true lord of the cosmos when that's supposed to be Caesar. Let's sort out, though, and let me state it in a, in a wrong way. Okay. And that is that uh, the work of creation never ceases. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's right. That's and, and, and what I mean by that is, well, obviously God creates, and, mm-hmm. and there is the sense that, well, he finished creation, yeah. but the potential or the, the goal of creation is infinite. Yeah. And that it was never that uh, creation is in some way bounded by the possibilities or God's incarnation or bounded by the possibilities of sin so that sin is not the main story but the incarnation and this is a very much mm-hmm. the Eastern Orthodox understanding I don't know if it's there in Aquinas yeah yeah that's the um, part of his work but in some way we lose that yeah. We we begin to privilege the notion of, of sin in some way being the controlling factor. So once you get that straight, mm-hmm. the creation's potential, and this is very much there in the Gospel of John. You yeah, know, that's what I was thinking about. The creation and recreation and uh, that it, it is on a continuum. Okay, you got that set. Well then why the death of Christ? And uh that we would not want to make the gospel about the death of Christ, but it is the case that sin and death Mm -hmm. require the cross of Christ. Not from God's stance, but you're describing. Well, so maybe a way of looking at it is that for God to fully, and I think this is what is... I think if I were to explain why Anselm is better than Calvin, it's not that Anselm's metaphor isn't problematic. I think it's probably more problematic for us than it was in his own time. But um, he still has a bit of the notion that the early church held to that what's happening is Jesus is identifying with us, which is almost just obliterated in penal substitution. Uh, I'm afraid that it's probably not the main point. Or at least we don't read it as the main... You know, I don't think any modern people just sit down and read Anselm's argument and get the main point as being, well, God is identified with us. It's not central enough, um, especially for us today. Um, But what you have is, in God identifying with us as much as we are finite, and, um, I mean, I don't really want to wade into the discussions about physical death and where that comes from or anything. I don't think it's important. But inasmuch as God's going to identify with something finite, their death's a part of that. So why is Jesus' death so violent? Why is it the way it is? Well, I think that's sin. We're, we are a secondary, a non-ontological cause for the violent death of Christ. But in God identifying with what it means to be human, there is an identification with finitude. And that is necessary. 
So I think Paul can easily say things like, well, the, you know, the lamb slain before the creation of the earth, before the foundations of the world, and he's not making sin primary, or he's not making sin rather a cause for who God is. And I think that's important to, to be able to see that distinction. So God, I think there is an understanding where, yes, from the very beginning, God is identifying with the finite. And that in some way includes uh, all aspects of finitude. But, but of you don't, and the, the danger here, you do not want to equate finitude with evil or sin. That's right. That's right. And so the, the problem is not finitude in regard to sin. The problem is that sin and death then, and death has come to take on uh, not some kind of neutral, you know, yeah. oh, well, that's the, no, death is in, in a, a biblical understanding an orientation that is definitive of sin that is inclusive of what's done to Christ. Yes, and so in Eastern Orthodoxy, you get the feeling that death is the cause, not finitude, but death is the cause for sin. That we we have this problem that we then try to overcome. A, a beautiful metaphor for this is in Tolkien's The Silmarillion, because he talks about the difference between elves and men. And of course, the elves were were created, but almost in the sense of how a lot of times we think about angels, they were created to be sustained eternally, no matter what. And and they know their fate, as in they they know what happens if they would experience something like death. They they go on, and it and not even in a, in a different sense. They're still in some located place on the world uh, that Tolkien is talking about. However, men don't have the same fate as the elves, and they die. They die in a sense that they do not know what's next. And it's not in some place located anywhere geographically. And what that does, and the way that the enemy, you know, whether it's the, uh, what is his name, uh, Melkor is the, Melchior is the first one, and then Saron later on, they twist that into making men see their finitude as an evil done to them by, by God or by the Creator. When actually the elves look at it and say, well, this is a gift, that you have some kind of fate that is in the hands of the creator that's beyond anything um, that's you know just contingent upon this world. It's actually a, a greater dimension. You're going to be something more than we ever will be type of thing. And I, so it's just a metaphor. You don't want to take it too far, the obviously. Sting of, the, maybe the, the, the sting of death is removed with sin. Is that the, the yeah. imagery that yeah. you're painting there yeah. that... That in some way, uh, if death is merely equated with finitude, that is, if death, uh, we can't extract death and sin. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But finitude's a gift to us. Run, and so the finitude is a gift to us because? Uh, well, I would, it's grounded in the, um, the wisdom and love of God, and our finitude is such that we understand this, and it's always in our face, this reliance and this um, dependence 
upon God that is sustained eternally. What what better illustration of love is there? So our finitude is a gift because it's an eternally sourced finitude. And so maybe I mean, and, and so in the Christian picture, obviously angels are finite too. There's nothing that's not finite apart from God. Right. So I mean, I think you have to say that um, and and understand that. But it is sort of a gift to us. But what you're describing is that we can have a very different attitude. I mean, where do you become totally reliant upon God is in the midst of your, the realization of death, uh, per se. Yeah. But uh, if if the sting of death, sin, is removed, yes, that complete yes. reliance upon God is not disrupted so that we can talk about, yeah. oh, no, they're not dead they've yeah. fallen asleep yeah. that in some way death is transformed itself and and that seems to be what's happening in the gospel that's the eschatological picture of christianity so that is the the long view and i think that's right so that um you know if we look at the story in genesis of adam and eve finitude is given to them in the most beautiful and poetic way that here you are finite, you have been placed in this guard, this place that is always going to sustain you by God. And God's the one doing it. And God's going to come walk with you as a source of life. You have the presence of God given to you, and it's a felt presence. And this is a gift to you. This is a good thing. That didn't mean that in some way that picture isn't still a picture of the finite, of human finitude. And so I think that's why divine simplicity has to be central. Because the tendency, I mean, in in its most perverse manifestation, is just to start claiming innate immortality of the human soul. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I, you kind of... I don't think that was there in Calvin. I don't think that's there in a lot of Calvinists. But it's certainly a jump that people have made, I mean, I'm just thinking of average Christians who misunderstand, uh, because what you have in Calvinism is saying that God in some way, it was necessary for God to make this eternal decree before the foundations of the earth about who is damned and who is you know, reserved for blessedness, and that is how it has to be, and there's an eternal torturous existence for the damned. And you you could understand why somebody would get the idea that oh perhaps we're just innately immortal, and and the point being that uh, we're equating and maybe maybe wrongly so but it, but the idea is the mark of finitude is that we're dependent upon God for life, yeah. and what you get in innate immortality is the it's a complete contradiction of Paul's statement God alone is immortal. Yeah. yeah. And and so that in some way, as one of my former professors said, that we are little pieces of God. Yeah. Uh, that's no longer Christianity. And that's where you would have either the conversation reduced to either it's all about what we can know about God, because you see you're innately immortal anyway, or it's all about ethics. Run that, run that. Well, I was thinking of Kant there. You know, the oh. only place Kant has for God is about ethics, and it yeah. it has to do with uh, it has to do with an infinite dimension of how do humans how are good acts rewarded is what he's trying to answer. If you do something good, how is that 
reward. How do humans achieve the summum bonum, the supreme good? Well, it must be an eternal type of thing. And so, well, you need God to ensure that can be the case. And it, but it's sort of it. It's God is the afterthought of well, humans are already immortal. And they so, are immortal. so that you're getting in a Western context, Western philosophy and Western theology, the working out of the notion that we are innately immortal. Yeah, and that's. And so the Eastern Church never, and that's where you started with the conversation, the Eastern Church never has this issue. Divine simplicity is always upheld, but even if it's not in those terms, and it's often not, there is simply a distinction. Think of uh, Palamas, Gregory Palamas, the Palamite theology, is that there is this distinction between God's nature and his energies. There is a strong assertion all the way throughout that in some way we have to affirm that who God is in and of himself is uncreated, everything else is created, and that's that's the big distinction. It's not about what can be known and what can't be known. It's not about, uh, although that plays into it, it's not about ethics, who's saved and who's damned. It's about God is uncreated, we are created, completely dependent, eternally sourced. This is Paul in Colossians. In Christ, all things cohere, or hold together, or sustained, whichever word you want to pick as a translation. So the, let, let's go back then. What is, why, what's the necessity of the cross? Well, the necessity of the cross is to save us. I think, uh, save us from our sins. And as we were talking that fits nicely in the sense that uh, if you're unredeemed, you're aware in some you're aware you have a problem. Mm-hmm. What, however, that manifests, you know, it it can manifest in a complete denial of the fact that you have a problem, but it's still central. And so, from an unredeemed perspective, sin is the big thing. If we're speaking in Christian terms. But and maybe we, and maybe we could define begin to define that sin as the claim, and when this is the fall of man, there's the claim that you won't die, that you'll mm-hmm. be like gods. Right. There's the idea of an innate you have life within yourself, and so in some way inherent in the rebellion against God or the rejection of God, ironically, is the very notion that prevails in a Western understanding. Yes. Yeah. That in some way we are innately, you know, immortal, or we're infinite, or we have the, you know, that's the rebellion. Yeah. We we have Christianity has been carried out as if the lie, the rebellion, were were the case, and we get a theology that is perverse to its core because it's a theology built upon uh, a rebel, the rebellious notion. Uh, that in some way we have life in ourselves. The whole mm-hmm. picture of you know you're describing a dependence. If you go back to the story of Abraham, that uh, you know the the hard maybe the most difficult passage in all of Scripture is Abraham taking Isaac mm-hmm. up Mount Moriah, and and what is it that Abraham you know learns in the culmination of that it's Yahweh Yireh that God will provide that we're dependent upon God specifically in the face of death Mm -hmm. and that chapter 11 of Genesis is what is man's rebellion 
that he would claim to be able to storm the right. heavens to in some way uh you know establish right. himself to make his name great and abraham's story is well no god that there mm. is this dependence and so i think our tendency and what we're describing is a theology that is almost tower of babel kind of theology it's <laughs> a good that's a good way to put it uh, <laughs> that in some way uh, we've imagined that the problem is God, and uh, we need, you know, God needs to get over his problem um, in in terms of his anger. Or we've imagined in and through, uh, you know, the being that we can in some way arrive at the being of God, that we can stack the bricks yeah. up of being. And we've imagined we've got it all figured out in both cases. It is it is a uh, exhaustive. Yeah. And so the mystery is is in some way left out. And so what you're describing, when you begin to describe, you're making a distinction uh, that the cross of Christ is specifically directed. I mean, it's, it, it is a product that Christ is murdered. Mm-hmm. They kill him. Uh, they would kill him because they have to kill him. Not because of God, but because of rebellion and sin. Because one man must die that the nation would be preserved. That the, it is the reason we always kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in some way we have to, uh, you know... Type sca- of scapegoating. Yeah, it's a scapegoat or in some way uh, we have to pay off, you know. Mm-hmm. Even, even in, this is, you know, this, this is the irony that the people who in, in a penal substitution that the people that kill Christ and the, the theology that would have him killed are in agreement. So it is a kind of perverse understanding. Yes, yeah. Whereas the flip side is, well, how did Christians think about this before they were so preoccupied with sin being all there is to theology? Well, um, Christ was in some way seen as a rescuer. So he's rescuing us from the dominion of Satan, from sin and death for the purpose of us fulfilling what we were created to be. And I'm afraid that what happens, uh, especially practically what happens, is that message, is what you were describing, is, well, salvation's really just good fire insurance. God's not angry at you anymore. He's not going to send you to hell. You don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, try to be a good person until you die. <laughs> I mean, there is just no impetus, or no uh, emphasis, rather, whatsoever on... The ontology of we are created, finite, sourced by the infinite to become like God, who is himself our source, who has gone out from himself in creating us, uh, has become like us in the incarnation, the first true human being, and then sent the Holy Spirit to bring us into himself to, so that we would be able to identify completely. That's just, well, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's, it's just not there. There's no room for it. The movement of who God is in Trinitarian love, uh, and maybe this is the, the way that you uh, put this earlier, that the idea you do not, in other words, creation, revelation, redemption, all have to, we do not want to in some way separate First of all, we don't want to separate out revelation yeah. from salvation. Yeah. Who God is, this is, you know, Bart's point. God is revealer, is revealed yeah. and revealing that that uh, the, the 
we're not encountering something other than God in Revelation, but we're encountering God. But you want to qual, and, and I think Bart. Well, I would be agreeing with him, really. I think, and the qualification that's inherent there. Well, we're dealing with revelation yeah. uh, that it is God revealing, it is God moving yeah. out uh, in created createdness yeah. in the incarnation. In other words, the point is that it's not that we have all of God. Uh, that in some way, certainly we have God in His uh, imminence but not in his... In other words, it's not that it's a fake. Yeah, I mean, we were beholding the essence of God. You're just not... As a finite human, you're not going to exhaust that. Yeah. It's inexhaustible. But that doesn't mean... So, you know, just with recourse to Aquinas, I mean, he doesn't think that... Um, he, he specifically says that... So in the long view of this, when humans are beheld by God and his glory, and we behold the glory of God... It's not by similitude. It's not by a metaphor or analogy. But then he's very quick to say, we don't comprehend that. Mm-hmm. And we never will. It's incomprehensible to us. His point is not that God is hiding some of himself. It's rather that God is so completely actual, meaning that God is so much present in everything as its source that it overwhelms us. And this was your point about Aquinas in Divine Simplicity. That he's not beginning he's beginning with divine simplicity but but he's couching this discussion in revelation so the you know the philosophers who want to read aquinas as a philosopher and oftentimes these are theologians as well this is the neo-scholastic reading of aquinas this is cajetan and this is suarez the way they read aquinas as a philosopher because they could make sense of him that way and you've got to realize this is after a lot of the theological shifts that we're saying are problematic, historically. The problem is if you are just really attentive to what Aquinas is doing in the very first, I mean, you call it kind of a prolegomena, or it's just the very first question, the questio of the Summa Theologica, he is saying that why we need revelation is so that we can participate in God's grace to achieve our end. Which then, in the very next, you know, the next article, he'll say, is God's knowledge that is beheld by the blessed. So he has couched his theological method, which is the way he's going to proceed and talk about simplicity and infinity and perfection and so on. Uh, you know, through the, ne- the rest of the prima pars, he's couched that in his theological method, which is identical to what he thinks salvation is. I think an easy way in the context of our conversation to say what does Aquinas think salvation is, well, it's deification. It's theosis. It's more than being saved from your sins. It is that. It's inclusive of that. But ultimately, it's having, uh, it's spending eternity with God, bearing the image and likeness of God as a finite being. I mean, that's an eternal movement. It's hard to even talk about because at some point it's just too much. But he's couched all of these what are so-called philosophical discussions in that notion. So why is God simple for Aquinas? Well, it's simple. God is simple because you have to um, uphold the distinction between God as infinite, uncreated light, us as created finite, and say that in some way we're dependent, which means we have a relation to God, yet God doesn't have a relation that's dependent upon us.
And so the focus is in Aquinas' picture of divine simplicity is not so much to explain God, but to explain yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the idea that uh, of of God's relationship to us. Yes. And I think that that's where uh, an Aristotelian or a purely philosophical understanding perhaps goes astray is and and project that on to mm-hmm. uh, right. Thomism. Uh, but once you get it couched in, no, we're talking about the economy of revelation and salvation, and there's where divine simplicity mm-hmm. uh, is key to maintaining a balance uh, between <clears throat> creation, redemption, and salvation. So you don't want to talk about salvation uh, apart from revelation, but all of this is couched in mm-hmm. creation right. and and uh, properly understood as who God is. And, and um, I think you almost have to do all this hard work to get there, but then it just becomes obvious. Well, if you ask the question, what is the work of Christ? Is it salvation? Is it creation? Is it revelation? Well, it's all of those things. Right. I mean, you have uh, in the Gospel of John, the creation is attributed in some sense, to the Logos. The Logos who is being incarnate and revealing God to us. The same Logos that is redeeming us, exercising Satan from the world and giving us a share with God. So it's inseparable in that sense, but um, I just... We have overemphasized one aspect or the other. So when we say work of Christ, say, oh, the cross. Yeah. Well, the, the... Uh, the cross, I think that we can talk about the cross of Christ as specifically directed to sin. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But if we miss the fact that, well, that's not all the work of yep. Christ, that the cross is part of the... And so the work of Christ is the full movement <laughs> of creation, redemption, yep. uh, salvation. The cross of Christ uh, is... Uh, maybe sometimes in Scripture it's used as a kind of... of language to encompass all of that but the cross of christ then uh is an overcoming of the violence the orientation to death it is an exposure this is the way that i've always understood it of the lie yeah uh that uh, the lie you know however you want to say it of innate immortality the lie that we have life in ourselves, the lie that we're not dependent upon god the lie that would put Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. in other words, the very thing that the very the the necessity that's there in penal substitution, the necessity that's there in those that killed Christ, all the same necessity mm-hmm. that is a part of the lie that is it should have been undone, mm-hmm. and so instead of getting a Christianity that defeats the lie of sin. We get a Christianity that, in fact, perpetuates yeah. the lie and the perversion and the violence so that we get a perverse, evil Christianity that does not deserve the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and practically, the ramifications are felt strongly in the sense that we have Christians that don't think being Christian has anything to do with Christianity. That, uh, that doing... Uh, following Jesus yeah, has nothing to no, do with uh, Why would I'm already saved? Yeah. Uh, it's a separate I, discussion. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yeah. 
okay, occasionally I fall. Uh, I did, you know, I've recently... You know, but it doesn't matter, because <laughs> Jesus' righteousness was imputed to me. Yeah, this type of thing. It's just... It, that conversation makes no sense whatsoever in the context of the way the early church reflected on the teaching of the apostles. And uh, this is where we are. Yeah. I think in <clears throat> that this is all coming out, uh, you know, in the particular political climate that we're in, yeah. uh, that we've got a guy that is pure evil, uh, not to not to say that he's that, but he's openly. Which blatant. turns out to be pretty, yeah. Pure evil looks pretty dumb incarnate, doesn't it? Um, the and and uh, in some way, evangelical Christianity embraces that. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know that the well, he's made mistakes. <laughs> it's okay, you know. I mean, but you know, he loves this country and he loves Jesus. It's it's okay, you know. And he's repented. Yeah, I mean, even though he says he's never asked for forgiveness, uh, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't does, need it apparently. He doesn't need to. <laughs> We'll give him a mulligan. Uh, uh, We don't expect our... So, the whole discussion... and This is the thing, and I don't know quite what to do with this, but this discussion brings this out. That we've fallen into a Christianity that is fallen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. Which is just to say that we've... I I think as ministers of the gospel have got to start teaching people that it's, you know, the scope of this is so much bigger than your sins are taken care of. And I, I don't want people here, you know, you could say, I think accurately, well, the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't care about sin. That's not to mean they don't actually care about sin. It's just that the picture is so much bigger. So it's not as if, oh, well, you know, it's not the liberal thing. Well, sin doesn't really matter. And this is all happening anyway. Uh, of course our sins matter, and they have been taken care of. And if you've ever been sinned against, you know how much it matters, because it hurts. Um, and so that's not to minimalize that aspect of what the gospel's doing, but it's just to place it. And in my mind, I think of it as being placed in a higher uh, sphere, with it has a higher telos, so that more is understood. So that sin is being overcome in our lives is understood in the sense, well, obviously, because I'm becoming more like Christ, rather than sin is being overcome in my life uh, because I just don't want to do bad things. And your point that if you've ever had evil done to you, but what what if you've had evil done to you in the name of Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the same, yes. Then there is no, it's almost a a complete blasphemy. That uh, and that's what you're getting in in yeah. people who you know will literally uh, do evil that grace may abound. Their Christianity is such that it allows yeah. them uh, evil in certain realms. Yeah. In other words, they've kind of divided out one realm from another. They've got the heavenly realm and they're saved in that realm. Yeah. And the earthly realm, well, that's a different matter and we have to well, do they, some... I mean, they purchased their fire insurance. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. so, so yeah. I think uh, this, this in, in a sense, gets at the necessity of an orthodoxy correctly worked mm-hmm. out. Uh, that divine simplicity is rightly understood a protection uh, uh, against a kind of perverseness 
wrongly understood, yeah. as you said. Yeah. Well, it's just yeah. onto theology. Yeah. yeah. So if you're saying that, well, the God who is revealed, the Trinitarian God of Scripture who has revealed Himself to us, can be understood by this metaphor of divine simplicity, you're doing something right. If you're saying, well, divine simplicity is the divinely simple being as the God that we worship, well, then you're doing something wrong. But I don't think, you know, we don't give the people of the Middle Ages enough credit. They were much more sophisticated than the people who came after them. And you can historically track that. Aquinas dies in 1274. He's immediately denounced, and then the Black Death happens. Um, Hundred Years' War happens. And you have a papal schism that divides the Western Church. Uh, why were all the insight that was, you know, kind of between maybe 1100 and 1300, what happened to all those insights? Well, the world fell apart. They were obscured. Yeah. They were obscured. And that's the, that's the thing, that it matters what we believe. But you, that one has to actually do the hard work of, yeah. of, of tracing these things out. Yeah. Uh, and and so, unfortunately, I think so many of us have existed in a context uh, that we are so taken up and absorbed in a misunderstanding that uh, Christianity, I, I've always thought that perhaps atheism is a step in the right direction for many people because the Christianity that they are rejected does not deserve to be believed in. I mean, Kierkegaard's point, well, it's harder to evangelize a Christian than a non-Christian. There's no hope so left. So if, if you get somebody who is sort of said, well, I'm completely done with this picture of Christianity, if it is, you know, this wrong picture, uh, then it's much easier to confront that person with the gospel and then say, oh, that, that does sound like good news. And, of course, that's it, is that, yeah. that I, I think that there is an alternative to uh, the, the standard in Roman Catholicism in evangelicalism uh, as it's very often. John, it's been a wonderful Oh yeah, we, we kind of addressed the issue and the ramifications. <laughs> <laughs>